everybody. Welcome back. It's another Green Socialist podcast. I'm Howie Hawkins. Ran for president in 2020 with the Green Party. And Angela Walker's here with me. She ran for vice president. So just to get us started today, yesterday a story came out that the Justice Department is going to go all out to find out who leaked the ProPublica the information that showed that the richest people in this country aren't paying taxes. And this was probably the biggest expose on, you know, what's wrong with the tax system in decades. So they're going after the whistleblower, the messenger, and not dealing with the message. And it's the same problem we've had since Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers and Barack Obama declared the war on whistleblowers and used the Espionage Act against people that revealed war crimes like Chelsea Manning and uh, John Kiriakou, who we talked to here about a month ago about whistleblowers. Trump continued it, and Biden's continuing it with continuing Trump's attempt to uh, extradite and prosecute Julian Assange and continue all the, you know, Espionage Act cases that he inherited from Obama and Trump. So I think that's a big issue. And it just shows that the people we have in government are more interested in keeping from us what they're doing than dealing with the problems that get exposed by whistleblowers. So, so that's one thing. It's on my mind. And then, you know, Manchin came out with his op-ed last weekend saying he wouldn't vote for the, for the People Act or to uh, weaken or modify or reform or get rid of the filibuster as if that was a new position for him. He's had that position all along. Everybody's acting like, oh, now we're in big trouble. Well, we've been in big trouble all along. And the fact is, as reporters have increasingly been reporting out, Manchin and Cinema are fronting for a whole group of Democratic senators that really don't want to get rid of the filibuster. And what does that mean? The whole reform agenda of the Democrats. And there's some good reforms in there. The For the People Act does have voting rights protections. It would make partisan gerrymandering harder. It would... Uh, require uh, dark money groups to report their contributions above a certain level. Uh, there's the Equality Act, so that people uh, who have different sexual orientations or gender identities are protected, are protected class under federal anti-discrimination laws. The Equality Act's on the line, DC statehood's on the line. I can't tell you how many people when we were campaigning saying, oh, we got to elect the Democrats and Biden so we can get D.C. statehood. Well, all those things were going to require at least 60 votes for closure, <coughs> which is like ending debate and then voting on the actual bill. And you're not 10 Republicans for any of those things. So as long as the filibuster's there, none of this is going to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. And meanwhile, Biden's been paying patty cakes with the Republicans on his infrastructure legislation. 
including the tax reforms that would help pay for it. So he uh, he did stop negotiating with Capito out of Wyoming, but now there's another group that's come forward and Biden's acting like it's a realistic proposal. It's about a billion dollars as opposed to 2.3 billion. And uh, there are progressives complaining in Congress that, you know, no climate, no vote for infrastructure. We'll see if they actually follow up on that. And they may not have enough votes in the House to stop. In the Senate, yeah, they do because the Republicans are going to be against everything, even if it's a compromise that Biden negotiates with them. So what that means going forward is none of these uh, liberal reforms that the Democrats touted and the economic stimulus that infrastructure and climate action could provide isn't going to happen or it's going to happen in a much lower level. I mean, the Democrats can get it through by uh, reconciliation, 50 votes plus Kamala Harris providing the tiebreaker if Manchin and Cinema go along with it. Manchin's saying he doesn't want to pass anything, doesn't have bipartisan support. You know, maybe they can get one or two Republicans. So we'll get watered down economic programs, none, nothing on the social programs, gerrymandering so the Republicans can uh, draw those districts in the 30 states where they control both state legislatures to make sure that they take back the House and then nothing happens. So, you know, where does that leave us? We got to build an alternative to this because the Democrats are feckless. They can't get it done. Even the simple things that don't go far enough for us, but go in the right direction, you know, they just seem to be pretty lackadaisical about how their own people are sabotaging them. I mean, this is a situation where the reality is the Democrats are negotiating with themselves, with Cinema and Manchin and the other senators who really don't want to get rid of the filibuster. We're kind of hiding behind Manchin and, and Cinema. And on the House side, I mean, there's legislation uh, that the Democrats want to pass that would uh, deal with some of the usurious uh, interest rates we're getting from the banking industry. And they're prominent Democrats, this, forget his name, this Democrat in New Jersey in the House, who gets all his money from the banking industry. You know, he's, he's blocking that. So, you know, the reality is, as I think I pointed out here before, yeah, there's some progressives on the Democratic side in Congress, but they are uh, a weak minority. I, I think it was quantified when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wanted to get on Energy and Commerce Committee, which deals with Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. And the Democratic leadership recruited Kathleen Rice, a conservative Democrat, to run against her. And the Policy and Steering Committee of the House Caucus, which decides on these committee assignments, voted 46 to 13 against AOC being on that committee. I think that tells you the balance of forces between the progressives and the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. So we're in a difficult situation, and uh, we've got to build an alternative. We're running out of time on climate. Nuclear arms race goes along. Uh, poor people, you know, economic issues are life and death for them. And there's really nothing we're getting from this administration. You know, they tout how they, they're going to cut poverty in half with this child, uh, these, these child credits, but they, they expire in a year. I mean, they're just not serious. So 
anyway, that's that's what's on my mind. How about you, Angela? Sorry, y'all. I'm looking for. I was making sure I got my links uh, in order. Um, so one of the first things to get the the my rant out of the way, um, the current vice president Kamala Harris recently made what I understand to be um, a very high stakes trip abroad into Guatemala, Mexico, and basically delivered. <laughs> a message to the people there, you know, in those countries, don't come to the U.S. <clears throat> There's a lot that I could say about that. There's a whole lot I could say about that. But in, in the spirit of keeping things diplomatic, which, you know, since I'm not part of the campaign anymore, I've been a little, a little bit more free to say what I want to say, but in the name of being diplomatic, I just find it very callous uh, and, and very interesting that the daughter of immigrants, both of Ms. Harris, as Vice President Harris's parents, are immigrants themselves. And so to, to take this stance on immigration and, you know, my understanding is, you know, like I said, I have to go further into it, but what I've read is just really, I, I just, you can't pee on me and tell me it's raining. I'm sorry. I, I just, I feel like that whole thing, everything that we're looking at right now, is like, this is not what you, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. And coming from a child of immigrants is just absolutely egregious, especially when you understand the conditions, you know, that, that prompt people to immigrate. And, but I guess you would have to be willing to be honest to, to, with yourself about the role of the United States in that. And God knows we can't do that. Okay. I'm going to shut up before I start swearing. Um, so that was on my mind. Um, the link is, is, uh, we're sharing those links and yes, Yes, I swear, you did. And I wanted, and that was the first thing I thought about. California warned us about her. California warned us. So my thing is, yo, this country got the leadership it wanted. This is what you wanted. This is what y'all are cheerleading. These are the people that, that are supposed to be the antidote to the last four years. Maybe now people will actually wake up and see how close together these folks, these, these, these parties are working and they work for themselves. They're not thinking about us. They're not thinking about the, the, the role that the United States has played in disrupting governments in other countries and, and creating dangerous situations for the citizens of those countries and then tell them you're essentially you're not welcome here. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to shut up because I'm about to cuss. Um. Also, what I included was um, there's been rumblings about a fourth stimulus check. Uh, I don't, they're not, there's not a lot of clarity how we maybe you might know something more than I do. Um, not a lot of clarity that I saw about the probability of that happening for people. I just wanted to bring uh, what interested me about that article is like, you know, you've got certain senators that are saying we need to keep 
making direct payments to people for the duration of this pandemic. And all I wanted to say is we told y'all that. That's what we campaigned on. You're welcome. We said that that you need to make sure that people are, you're not forcing people out back to work like they are here in South Carolina, which is one of the states that, that returned the uh, pandemic unemployment compensation money. South Carolina turned it down. So as of June 30th here in South Carolina, if you are on unemployment and you have been receiving that $300 extra, you will not be receiving it anymore because the governor here has decided in his great paternalism that you need to go to work. However, when you look around and they're talking about, oh, all these great jobs available up to $9 an hour, up to $10 an hour, who's gonna live on that? And, and even deeper, if you have not examined the fact that people can live better, when someone is living better and able to meet their obligations financially, on unemployment, we have a problem with wages. It's not that it's not that that complex. And people talking about folks don't want to work. They don't want to work for starvation wages. And this is part of the normal. We are not going to go back to. So I'm really, really digging, really digging that um, folks have been doing that. If you've been able to get that money, keep getting it as long as you possibly can you know, make the best decisions for yourselves because a lot of the states that are turning this money back in are also real lax about their mask mandates. So that's that's also happening. So that's my rant. I'm going to try not to swear. Also, in happier news, all of us queers and those who love us, Chloe O. Davis has blessed us with the Queen's English. Yes, family, there is a gay dictionary. And I just call it the gay dictionary. It's completely inclusive, whether you're ace, whether you're, you know, you're on the ace spectrum, whether you, you know, all of these different intersections of who we are as queer, or, you know, whether you're trans, whether you're, you're, you know, all of us along the rainbow, we got a dictionary. And so I'm recommending it. It will give you life if you are able to get a hold of it. It is the collaboration. You know, the, the author, Chloe O. Davis, is a young black woman. And the collaboration of young people, people with disabilities, every segment of folks that intersects with LGBTQIA+, we all in here. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful document. So if you're able to get a hold of that, go on and get your life and get a hold of the Queen's English. Also, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Um, this book, for all these folks who have, if you are feeling some type of way about the way that Black women are constantly denigrated in this country, here's your antidote. Here's a, here's a little piece of armor that just reminds us that Black women have been trailblazing. We have been creating family. We have been bending, doing what we can to bend the parameters that we have been given in this country and create, even in our own lives, create the worlds that we want to see at great cost many, many times. You know, a lot of these young women were in prison for 
prostitution when that isn't what they were even doing. And also, even if you were doing it, that's a whole nother story. I mean, you don't lock folks up for, for doing what they need to do. And so um, it is wayward lives, beautiful experiments, intimate histories of riotous black girls, troublesome women, and queer radicals. So if you are able to get a hold of this book by Sadia Hartman, another young black woman, you want to. Beautifully researched, deep work done to make this book possible. And um, I go and get y'all's life and, and, and get it. And that's all I got. Go, 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 one, two, three. Well, hello. What senators slash Congress member, uh, members endorse ranked choice voting and which ones who don't? Which ones don't? How do we endorse ranked choice voting on a national level? I don't know of any senators. Uh, at least they haven't put legislation in. On the House side, there's a Fair Representation Act which would require states to use multi-district ranked choice voting, which would create proportional representation in those delegations from those states to the House. <clears throat> there are actually two bills that do that. One is primarily sponsored by Jamie Raskin of Maryland and the better bill called the Fair Representation Act, which Raskin also is a co-sponsor of, is called uh, the Fair Representation Act and that was introduced or sponsored by Don Beyer of Virginia. And as I recall, in the last session, they maybe got up to somewhere between a dozen and two dozen uh, members of the House who signed on to that. So what that tells us is there is no movement in the House, in the Congress, to do ranked choice voting and proportional representation. So the second part of the question, how do we endorse it? We got to build a movement. And I think the way we get momentum at the federal level is to get more and more cities and counties and towns to start using ranked choice voting, particularly for multi-member districts for proportional representation on the legislative bodies, and then take that up to the state level. And so more and more people are familiar with it. They begin to like it. And then we can make it an issue at the federal level. You know, we campaign on, instead of this ridiculous electoral college, where 19 of the last 50 presidents have been elected with less than a majority. And five of them came in second in the popular vote. The electoral college is a farce. I mean, in this last election, Trump lost by 7.1 million votes. That was 4.1%. Solid victory for Biden in the popular vote. Yet, if a little over 23,000 voters had voted for Trump instead of Biden across Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia, we would have had a 269-269 electoral college vote tie, which under the 12th Amendment would have kicked it to the House. Each state has one vote. 26 of the state delegations are majority Republican. They would have picked Trump. So we could have had an election where Trump lost decisively in the popular vote. I mean, 7.1 million votes, 4.1%, and still could have been anointed president. We came that close in 2020. 
The electoral college is a is an embarrassment. Yet there is a bill to uh, amend the constitution and replace the electoral college with a national popular vote, not a ranked choice national popular vote. You know, it'd be good if we found somebody, one of these progressive so-called democratic socialists to put a bill like that in to get the discussion started. Um, so, you know, even at that level, we tried to raise that in the campaign. In fact, when I first announced, Bill McKibben of 350.org wrote in the New Yorker that I should not run so Biden could win and focus on ranked choice voting. You know, it wouldn't even have been raised in the presidential race if it wasn't for us. And I don't think Bill McKibben said a word about ranked choice voting since that article. So it's really up to us. Now, there are movements in almost every state to push ranked choice voting. And we've been promoting that people get involved in those in their states. Because, you know, thinking about the last election, we were blanked out in the media. The whole argument against us was Trump is an extremist and you got to vote for a centrist like Biden to get him out of there. And we can't risk a vote for socialists or progressives who are not part of the two-party system. And the winner-take-all, you know, system, uh, you know, incentivizes people to think that way. We can't get around that until we change it. So we have ranked choice voting for executive offices and proportional representation through multi-seat ranked choice voting for legislatures. And, you know, I was saying during the campaign, Greens have over 100 elected officials. We can win those local races and we can. We should be electing thousands now as we go into the 2020s. But that's a longer path to get to the point where we have the political foundation to get, get significant uh, elected officials and state legislatures in the House of Representatives. With ranked choice voting and proportional representation, we can get there a lot faster. And that movement has momentum. We got five more cities and another state, Alaska, in the November election. And since then, Burlington, Vermont, Austin, Texas, and 23 cities and towns in Utah, including Salt Lake City, have approved uh, ranked choice voting. So this is a movement we're winning reforms, we're gaining momentum. And I think it's probably the most important thing we can be working on right now because, as I said in the opening, the Democrats ain't getting the damn thing done when they got both houses in the presidency. Here in New York, they got both houses in the governorship. And when they didn't have the power, when the Republicans controlled the Senate, they kept passing single-payer health care in the assembly. Now, for the last three years, they've had the power. They don't even bring it up for a vote. The session closed on Thursday. No vote on single-payer. And in fact, the guy that wrote the bill like 30 years ago blurted out in frustration in a radio interview, you know what's happening? We got a majority of Democrats in the assembly are co-sponsors, but they're not really for it because they go privately to the speaker of the assembly and say, I don't want to vote on it. And you know what's happening? The insurance industry is pouring money into their campaign coffers. So, you know, the Democrats, I think I tweeted this when I was about the, you know, the failure of the Democrats again in New York. Watch what they do, not what they say. You know, we get a lot of talk, 
Infrastructure Climate Action, DC Statehood Equality Act, the For the People Act, but it's not happening. And the Democrats seem kind of relaxed about it because a lot of them got safe districts and they're like, I'll be okay, but not the rest of us. So I think you're raising a very important issue at this time, ranked choice voting and proportional representation. If we settle for ranked choice voting from single member districts for legislative bodies, nothing's gonna change. They have in the House of Representatives in Australia, 151 seats, and it's by ranked choice voting from single member districts. So the Greens get over 10% of the vote in the 2019 election and you only get one of the 151 seats. <coughs> On the Senate side, they have multi-member districts and proportional representation. And the Greens got nine of 76 senators, which is 11.8%, which is close to the 10.2% vote they got. That shows you the difference between if you stick to single member districts, whether it's plurality voting or ranked choice, nothing changes. You know, Greens can run. We won't be the spoilers in ranked choice. But in the end, in most districts, the Democrats and Republicans got the majority and they're going to win that seat. So nothing changes. And we're excluded, even though we're a 20 to 30 percent party. So that's, I think, the thing we really got to focus on, you know, in the next, you know, starting now for the next few years and open up the political system. Hey, Ms. Hey, Lee. Hey, baby. What are your opinions on free speech? Should we internationally censor speech if we don't like speech we don't like that seems bad, or should everything come out in the open so we can work from there? It's a good question. I mean, I, I am not someone who supports censorship. And also, I am not someone who thinks fascists deserve a platform. That's me. That's my personal feeling. Do I believe in, you got the grandbaby, Diana? Okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> do I believe in censorship? No. Would I support censorship? No. Do I personally believe some people need to shut up? Absolutely. Howie? Well, the question is, who is we? If we is the state, you don't want to give the state the power to censorship or to censor because you may think they're getting the people you don't like but we on the left are the first that are going to be censored so don't give the state that power now if we is us you know the green socialists we don't have to give a platform to fascists they can find their own damn platform so now the question that comes up is well what about you know facebook and twitter and these big social media platforms and they have become monopolies. So they have to be regulated or actually I would say socially owned. And so they're not state media. They should have boards that are selected by lot. So you get a representation of the public, but it's not controlled by the state or by private investors like it is now. And those people can then decide by what criteria uh, people are on or off the platform based on standards of, uh, you know, hate speech or advocating violence. Um, I mean, there are clear cases where you're organizing violent action, you know, 
that is not acceptable because that's actually criminal, you know, a criminal violation. Um, now, if you're talking theoretically about the need for an armed revolution, that's different. But if you're actually planning it, uh, that's that's another thing. So anyway, the state should not be able to censor. Um, we can decide who's on our platforms. But the big issue right now are these big social media platforms. That's what all the debate's about. And I think the answer is to socialize. And they're natural monopolies. Once they reach a critical mass, everybody wants to be on them because that's where the most people in information is. Why would you go somewhere else? So they, they're natural monopolies. And natural monopolies are, you, you don't have to be a socialist to realize they should be socially owned and publicly regulated. So that's my thoughts. Hey, Eric. Hey, sweetheart. I am prepared for this question. I saw it in the chat. My idiot governor, Ron DeSantis, and State Department of Education decided to reject critical race theory. As a teacher, what would be the best way to fight against this stupidity? Back in, uh, was it 2019, when that individual who previously occupied the White House passed the gag order against uh, higher institutions of higher learning teaching critical race theory, the African-American Policy Forum fought, uh, you know, they've been fighting that. And I don't know where K through 12 schools, if there are resources for them, but I did put a link in our private chat and I think the boss will share it um, from the AAPF. Um, and you can look through there and see if there's anything that might be useful to you um, because I saw where you were saying, you know, you, you, you are doing what you can, but um, I'm curious to know, you know, if there are resources within this. And when I saw this question, the first thing I thought of was the work that the AAPF is African-American policy forum is doing and has been doing uh, their truth be told campaign, which is, you know, aimed at colleges and universities but I'm wondering how much of that work would translate to K-12, you know, and I've seen clips of parents saying, I don't want to taught in schools to my kids. I'm not, I'm not messing with that right now. Um, cause I'm going to swear. Uh, but I'm wondering if there are resources through the work that they have been doing, that would be things that could translate to what you want to do too. So I don't have a hard and fast answer for that, but I do have that website and um, you can check it out and see what they got that might might work. Because I don't know who else to ask other than, you know, the teachers union. NEA, where where do they stand on this? What is NEA doing with this? Even if you're even if, you know, you are not part of the NEA, it seems to me they would have resources that they'd be able to share with K-12 educators around this issue because this is, it's so widespread. Howie, what do you think? Well, I think the idiots, DeSantis and Florida State Department of Education and all these Republicans around the country that are suddenly all up in arms about critical race theory you know, these are the people that are whining about cancel culture. Hmm. And here they want to cancel some culture. Now, I'm just like a regular guy. 
I've been involved in civil rights a long time. We have a lot of anti-police brutality and anti-housing discrimination activity in my city. And I never heard anybody say critical race theory. I mean, I had to look it up. I mean, basically, I guess it's about teaching the history of racism in this country and saying it's bad. I mean, I, so this is like kind of the Republicans took an academic term and threw it out there to scare people, you know? And uh, so the question is, no, the second question here is, you know, how do teachers fight back? You know, teachers got to work with parents like the Chicago Teachers Union did. Get them on your side, get the community on your side and fight for more local control and community control and parent-teacher control instead of state control and uh, mayoral control that we got in some cities where they want to run the schools like they're a corporation. That's what Bloomberg brought into New York City and happened in a bunch of other cities mm -hmm. and didn't improve the schools. In fact, made them worse. I mean, everywhere they've done mayoral control or the state takes over, you know, look at New Orleans. So I think you got to organize and fight back against, as you called it, stupidity. You're the teachers. You guys, you guys try to transform ignorance into knowledge. Because, you know, that, that old saying, you know, you think education is expensive. Try ignorance. Woohoo! <laughs> Man. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> Ooh. The dumb is strong in these streets. Anyway. Hey, boo. Amy Sachs, well, Amy L. Amy L. Sachs, excuse me, darling. Have already seen a claim that Dems in New York had to reject the health care bill because the GOP added bad things to it. But I saw no proof of this. Imagine that. Sounded like pure spin. Yeah, there were no amendments to the bill. It didn't even come out of committee. They never really marked it up. Now, the Republicans oppose it. Yeah, that's true. But the Democrats got control in the assembly in the Senate. No amendments that the Republicans want are going to be adopted. So I don't know who's saying that, but they're spinning. Hey, go, go, go. One, two, three. Thank you, Howie and Angela, for answering. That was Howie, actually. That's the ranked choice voting guru over there. How do you think Biden should handle Russia and China? Yeah, there's actually a story that uh, Sputnik uh, interviewed me about, and it went out on, it got published in Pakistan and India. And what I told him was, first of all, with they were asking about the Biden-Putin summit. First of all, I said it's good they're talking in private instead of that farce we saw in March where Biden answered George Stephanopoulos, yeah, Biden is a killer, quote unquote. And Putin responded by saying, let's have a online tele televised debate. So what they were doing was performing for their domestic and international audiences, which means they're not going to really talk about anything serious. They're going to be, be like a political campaign. So it's good they're talking in private. Now, what should they talk about? They're obviously going to criticize each other's human rights records, and they're both right, and that's fine to raise the issue, but they should not link it 
to the life or death issues they've got to address, which is this new nuclear arms race, the climate emergency. Those are top of the list. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal they could work on. They could talk about getting an intermediate range nuclear forces treaty back. There's a lot they could do in that area. Climate, I don't know how much progress they're going to make. We're, the U.S. and Russia are both petrostates. They are going full speed ahead with fossil fuel development. You know, the Russians are looking forward to exploiting oil and gas in the Arctic. They have one barge with seven more plant with two nuclear plants on them out in Arctic Ocean to power oil and gas drilling. You know, what the hell could go wrong? And Biden is for fracking. He has not stopped the Dakota Access Pipeline, Enbridge Line 3, Enbridge Line 5. Those are things where he could intervene and stop them. But he's not because his people are meeting with the industry. Gina McCarthy, uh, she's now, I guess his domestic climate czar and carries his foreign climate czar. She met with the, I think it was the Petroleum Institute this week. She met with the fossil fuel industry before Biden released his infrastructure and climate plan. So, you know, the Biden plan is to keep burning fossil fuels and tell us they're going to capture the carbon and store it underground, which is not economically feasible without massive subsidies. And it's a logistical infrastructural nightmare to set that up. So, um, so I don't, I'm not expecting much progress on climate. Um, and then their regional conflicts, you know, I said both of them should stop their war games. They're very provocative, particularly on the NATO-Russian frontier. Um, I didn't say this, but, you know, the U.S. has been pushing NATO into Russia's face after promising not to back in uh, when George H.W. Bush was president. And we have that documented now. You go to the National Security Archives, they got the documents. Um, that's a website online. Um, and now they're fighting over Ukraine. And it's very provocative for the U.S. to try to bring Ukraine into the EU and NATO. They don't need to do that. Ukraine should, we should encourage Ukraine to be neutral and independent of both sides to get the best deals they can from both sides for their own purposes. Now, there are conflicts within there. The Russians are in eastern Ukraine. They took Crimea. A lot of issues there. That's one thing they could talk about. Syria, Libya, we're in proxy wars with the Russians there. Um, so they, they could make progress on those things. And uh, uh, cybersecurity, I said, you know, the Russians have been offering to negotiate a cybersecurity treaty since George W. Bush. And Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden have rejected that. And that's one thing I think is important, given all that's going on in the cyber world with all this hacking and potential for disrupting infrastructure and having cyber wars that are given, given where we are now and how dependent we are on uh, the Internet and, you know, electronic communications could be devastating for our economies. So I think those are some areas. So and I think the same approach with China, you know, their human rights issues. China say we have human rights issues. It's fine to raise them, but don't link that to de-escalating the tensions. The U.S. Uh, treating China as a potential 
rival to being the one big superpower is is provocative. It's it's uh it's destabilizing. And understandably the Chinese are defensive because we haven't surrounded, you know, with military bases and aircraft carriers. And so, you know, the South China Sea, there are issues there. Vietnam, the Philippines, Japan, very upset with the Chinese sort of claiming it is their turf. Well, you know, let them negotiate with the Chinese about that. I mean, we can we can maybe diplomatically be involved, but to send our military right through there, it's like, you know, the Chinese fleet, you know, hanging around the Gulf of Mexico. You know, that's unnecessary. So uh, I think we need to demilitarize the relationship and uh, use diplomacy. Uh, we are very much tied to each other economically. The idea that you know, sanctions, which Trump started, Biden has continued. They just passed legislation. This is one thing that Democrats and Republicans could agree on is, you know, requiring domestic content because they're saying the Chinese have uh, control of our supply chains. That's actually true. It's maybe not a bad idea. But don't couch it as, you know, we're defending ourselves from some kind of Chinese assault because it's American companies over in China that did a lot of that. So, I think the basic approach is really get serious about these really important issues and don't let human rights progress be required to make progress on these other things. Because the human rights thing is going to take a while. And the U.S. can't be too self-righteous about that because we have the world's largest uh, prison system in history. We have incidents like the George Floyd murder going out on the Internet around the world. We don't have a lot of credibility to be telling other people what's wrong with what they're doing, even if it is wrong what they're doing, which I think it is. You know, the suppression of opposition in Russia, you know, the destruction of human rights in Hong Kong, the national oppression of the Tibetans and the Uyghurs is real and is wrong. But, you know, I would I would say the best thing we can do for human rights is to not get in the face of the Chinese and the Russians, because then they use that aggression by us as justification for their nationalism and domestic repression. It gives them the excuse. So if we backed off and used more diplomacy and made progress on real issues that are a concern to both sides, we'd be in a better position. And I'm gonna slide in here super quick, Eric. Uh, just to backtrack to your question, and I was like, I didn't know what the NEA said. I got resources. There are resources in the chat from where the NEA stands on critical race theory. And also the boss reminded me of the AFT, which I don't know how I forgot y'all. I love y'all. I apologize. So the American Federation of Teachers and also the, the Organization for Teachers in Florida, where you are, sir. So if you are not a member, I'm just going, you know. Hint, nudge, nudge. Um, those resources are in the chat and they speak specific. One speaks specifically to what is happening uh, to K-12 in Florida where y'all are being essentially uh, gagged to not be able to teach about the uh, critical race theory. And also, you know, where there's an there's actually an actually actually an action happening today 
that I want to say, do, 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 hold on a second. Um, there's a, a gathering today, nationwide, gatherings nationwide um, with the Zen Education Project. Zen Education Project, which promotes the teaching of people's history in classrooms across the country and in collaboration with Black Lives Matter at school, are inviting education, educators, families, students, and other allies to, to raise public awareness about the danger of the anti-history education GOP bills in gatherings nationwide today. That's actually happening today. So your question was mad timely. So um, yes, darling, you if you're not involved with the teacher organization, um, let me get their name right because I'll be you know all over the place. Florida Educators Association, um, and I should know them because I I collaborate with all these folks at one time. Um, so if you're not involved, I want you to you know at least introduce yourself. You know. Feel your, get your little feelers out and see see what see what the lay of the land is and and um yeah hit those links in the chat and see if they answer your question and give you something more concrete to work with in your classroom. Yes, Megger. Hey, Abdul. Hi, baby. Megger Evers today, nineteen sixty three, and I'm assuming that. Because uh, I'm not looking at a calendar or anything, but that was the murder of of Megger Evers in his driveway in front of his pregnant wife. Um, by who was that? Byron De La Beckwith, who uh, died a few years ago, didn't he? I want to say he died in prison, but I don't think that he, he did. Murdered Megger Evers. Megger Evers. His assistant at the Mississippi NACP was uh, Coley Clark, who has been a Green candidate in New York for U.S. Senate and, you know, was then involved in SNCC and with King when he went up to Chicago. And, you know, she's still active. She's in now up there in years, lives in Harlem, New York. And uh, but she was Medgar's assistant. So rise in power. Um, thank you for bringing that to the gathering today, Abdul. Um, because I'm behind on everything. So thank you for that, Eric. Given that this is Pride Month, we need to have a history on LGBTQ plus curriculum. I completely agree, and I hope that schools, particularly, um, are across the country talking about these, especially in light of the fact that so many of the, you know, the GOP is not just attacking uh, critical, the right to teach and discuss critical race theory in the classroom, but also protections for trans, uh, gender non-conforming and non-binary students in schools themselves, you know, attacking their ability to participate in sports, attacking uh, their right to uh, transition or you know, receive help transitioning for young people that that is applicable applicable to. Um, so this is extremely timely, and you know, when we're looking at the statistics on LGBTQ plus youth, we're talking, you know, we're talking about you know houselessness. We're talking about the way that these, you know, the the higher rates of houselessness, higher rates of um, self harm and things like that because of 
the way that that they are treated and the way that they're marginalized. So this is absolutely, I think, something that needs to happen in our public schools. And, you know, one of the things looping back to the book that I referenced, Wayward Lives, is a whole, for all of these folks that are like, oh, well, you know, treating being queer, being trans, like this is something that happened in the last few years. No, baby, we've been doing this for decades. I'm sorry. This is over a hunt that is documented. So, you know, we've been here. And um, yeah, so I, I completely agree, Eric. We absolutely need to have that history to um, not just teach people about our communities, but also foster, foster acceptance. And that's not strong enough, but it's the, the most diplomatic way I know to say it, to foster acceptance for our young people so that we're not losing them. And we're not, you know, they're not experiencing houselessness and violence and, you know, being picked on the police in the way that they are. So you're right. Tom Cop. <laughs> Bless your heart, baby. You are such a brave soul to come in here with that name. Read the room, Poppy. Um, this is all just more culture wars to keep us divided and allowing Republicans and Democrats to do nothing real for the people. No one's stopping them from doing anything. <laughs> Who's stopping the Democrats or the Republicans from doing anything? Tell me. These people have power. How we just said, these are the folks that have the power in the House. Democrats have the power in the House and they have the presidency and nothing is getting done. So don't come here to this marginalized third party and tell us we're being divisive. We're cleaning up these people's mess. Well, you could also read that to say the discrimination against LGBTQ people, like discrimination based on race and other forms of invidious discrimination are what divide us. The culture wars are initiated by the right to divide the people. So to say we should uh, include LGBTQ history, and I, you know, the, the second point that Angela added, uh, say that you know, we should accept all human beings who come in a spectrum of sexual orientations and gender identities uh, is unifying, not divisive. And I mean, labeling, slapping the label, oh, this is culture wars or this is identity politics is also an effort to erase these different communities and say, and it, and it sends the message, if you were more like us, we could, we could, you know, if you would just be more like us, then, you know, or the way that we think you should be, then, you know, we could ride for your cause. That's garbage. It's garbage. We are going to stand up and demand that we are recognized for who we are and all the things that we bring to the work that we do. All of these facets of our personalities. We're not two-dimensional or one-dimensional beings to make other people's comfort. Damn your comfort. Republicans and Democrats don't do anything real for the people because they don't fucking want to. It is not in their interest to do it. So whatever analysis you brought to this and culture wars and all that, go peddle that crap on the right. You in the wrong house. 
I wouldn't assume that. Look at his last comment. I think he was maybe saying this. Yeah, there you go. This 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 discrimination is what divides us. Well, that question read completely different. And being that we have already taken shots from people that because we we discuss issues of race and gender and we don't broad paint the left with a broad brush to make people comfortable, we have taken heat for that. So if I got my back up at you wrongly, I apologize for that. But I meant everything I said. Violet, hey boo. I hope you're feeling better, sweetheart. What do you think happened to Senator, Sen Senator Cinema? Wasn't she green once? How <laughs> am gonna let you have it? <laughs> yeah, 20 years ago, she was active in the anti-Iraq war movement. I think she ran as a green once. And then some Democrats got to her and said, hey, you know, you're a pretty good speaker. You know, we can uh, change the message a little bit and get you elected. So she got into the state assembly. And the evolution went from there, and she became a Arizona Democrat, which is a pretty conservative Democrat. Um, and I think it's about, you know, do you want to change the world or be a well-paid politician, you know, with high status? And I think she made her choice. That's that's what happened to her. And that's how many times have people told us the same thing? You should run as a Democrat. If you're running on the side of the Greens, you're never going to win anything. This is what happens when you when you turn coat. Ms. Leo, hey, boo. They're still with the let's get back to normal programming. Going back to normal means police killing brown people and people going homeless and billionaires getting richer. Yeah, basically. Yeah, what bugs me about Biden is he says, and I think that's why he's pursuing this infrastructure negotiation with the Republicans. He wants to reunify the country, he says. And, but what's he doing? He's capitulating to the people that divided us, particularly the Republicans acting on behalf of the right wing of the ruling class to make the exploitation and discrimination against working people even harsher. And, you know, that's getting back to normal. And, you know, I think Biden is enabling the Republicans in that way, who are the ones that are most overt about normal mean, let the police go kill people, let the homeless fend for themselves, and make sure the billionaires get richer because in their idea, their theory, which doesn't work, trickle down economics, the billionaires get money and somehow it trickles down on top to us. And I, I think I go back to what Angela said earlier. Don't tell me it's raining when you're pissing on me. That's what trickle down economics is. And I'm tired of getting trickled on, quite frankly. Tired of getting trickled on. Hey, vote Green Party. Hi, baby. Are Greens going to run a candidate for California governor since they are trying to recall Gavin Newsom? 
Yeah, I think the Greens in California debating it. I, I've heard there's a, a trans candidate they may run, which makes it interesting because the leading Republican is Caitlyn Jenner, also a trans person. So it'll uh, her politics bring a lot of attention and uh, a platform in which to raise the Green platform. And her politics are awful. Caitlyn's politics are awful. She got rich people politics. So yeah. yeah. Problematic. Republican. She's a Republican. Yeah, which is just yeah. Yeah. People vote their tax bracket. <laughs> hey boo. Ms. Leo is saying, since the police basic are basically billionaires' private security, can we the people create our own anti-police to stop their police with criminal tendencies? That's community control of the police. That's uh, taking control of the police out of their own hands, their own activities, their own violations of the law, their assaults, their killings, and not having them judge their own people inside the police department. It needs to be independent uh, investigation and sanctioning of police misconduct by a board that is uh, elected or selected by a lot from the people. That's what we've been advocating. And they're making progress on that in Chicago. And there's also a movement in Detroit and a movement in Los Angeles. We should have it in more cities because I'm afraid coming out of this, these protests last year, uh, most of what the leadership of these local protests have settled for is what the Democrats are willing to do. They're not willing to take control of the police out of the police hands. They talk about you know, uh, uh, use of force policies, like no chokeholds. And as I think I pointed out here many times, we had a no chokehold policy in New York City for 20 years before Eric Garner was choked to death by a cop. And then the police internally didn't take care of that guy. So um, that illustrates the point. Gotta be stronger medicine than just some more guidelines given your citizen review board, which is not a community uh, control board, but you know they advise police departments. They maybe do a little investigation and reporting, but the police maintain control. And then you have to understand behind the police, it's not just billionaires, it's multimillionaire real estate developers. That is the money behind political machines in all our urban communities. And they use the police to enforce the new Jim Crow. Keep black people and other people of color and poor people out of upscale neighborhoods. And then basically crack their heads so they know who's in charge. And they don't even think about challenging the discrimination. Um, that's So I'm just saying it's not just the billionaires. There's only about 450 of them in the country. There are hundreds of thousands of capitalists, particularly in the real estate industry, that like the local police to do what they do. So it's a, it's a broader enemy than just the billionaires or opponent. And but that's what's behind the kind of cops we got. We got the kind of cops we got because that's what basically the real estate industry wants. Get out, hey mama. Howie and Angela, how do we get more effective messaging out to the people 
to contrast the Green Party with the corporate parties? Well, I would say number one, the most effective is word of mouth, which means organizing real locals. I mean, mass membership locals. If you're in a city of a few hundred thousand or a million, you should have hundreds of members of the local Green Party who are then the messengers. You need internal education, you need to do relational organizing or deep canvassing where you're knocking on doors and listening, not just preaching at people. That's the most effective message because once people know us and trust us, then they'll hear the message. You just can't do it on Facebook or letters to the editor or handing out leaflets on the street. Those things have their place. But, uh, or sending news releases to the media who themselves are pretty ignorant. I, I have to say this, you know, in politics, I run into it every day. <coughs> they, in the local media, they've fired all the old reporters that knew what the hell was going on, hired a bunch of kids out of college because they can pay them less, maybe busted the union. Um, and so they don't even know who they're talking to. I mean, I run into reporters all the time, and this includes TV and radio. When they get to our news conference, they, they take me aside and say, I don't even know what this is about. Explain me what I'm reporting on. That is where we're at. So the media, the you know traditional media is, is weaker than ever. So, you know, I would say we need to be our own media and the strongest media is not just slick leaflets and memes and uh, newsletters, but the people, our people ourselves, talking to people in the community and getting a reputation. So then when we do speak, we're like, for those of you old enough to remember the E.F. Hutton commercials, you know, just when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. That's what we. That's the way we want people to think about the Green Party. We want people in the community when there's a problem. They, we want them to say, "Well, what does the Green Party think about this?" And you know, contact us. So, I think that's the most effective thing we can do. We got to organize. And while you know, social media and traditional media have their place, um, they're not going to message for us as well as we ourselves are. So that's a, that's a plea for let's get organized and engage with the people, not the usual suspects, but, you know, people out there in the neighborhoods and the communities. And we should be talking to them, listening to them and, and getting to know them and have them get to know us. And then our message will get through. I think we bought to get the cane. So, um, Howie, you go first. What do you have that you want to leave our folks with? Well, I think I left them with one thing, and that is organize strong locals. And don't think of that, you know, you got half a dozen, a dozen people in your town or city. You got a local. You got a nucleus to organize. We want to be a mass party. We want hundreds of people, not just a few people. And when we got that, then we can start winning these local elections and, and having a real influence on what goes on. And then going back to what I said at the beginning, I mean, the nightmare scenario is this. Uh, 
The, the Republicans use their gerrymandering power to strengthen their hold over state legislatures. I think this is the right number. In Wisconsin, in the last, uh, maybe it was 2018, maybe it was 2020, uh, the Republicans got something like 38% of the votes statewide, and they got 54% of the seats in the assembly because they drew the districts to benefit them. And they're doing that right now. And the damn Democrats can't get at least that one piece of the For the People Act passed to stop it. So the Republicans, and then they're going to draw the districts so they can uh, get a majority in the House. I don't care how good the Democratic messaging is and how much money they raise. If the districts are drawn around enough traditional Republicans so that they can you know, gain a few seats here and there in these different states, they're going to take back the House. And then the other thing they're doing is not just voter suppression. Maybe even more important is they are saying changing how the votes are counted. They are disempowering independently elected or civil service election officials and giving that power to legislatures where they're a majority. The power to change elections, to just decide that, you know, a district they don't like, like Georgia, that Fulton County. That's where all the black people are. We're going to say that was a fraudulent election. We're not going to count those votes. That's what they're setting themselves up to do, which means they can flip states in the presidential election and flip the presidential election. And we will become, you know, it's it's been a biased uh, electoral democracy dominated by rich money. But now it's becoming a situation where this far right extremist party, the Republicans, may be able to overturn elections, and then what? Where does that leave us? So we're, you know, we're, in a, we're on the verge of something serious, and I just can't believe how you know, the, the Democrats in Congress seem so lackadaisical about what's going on. I mean, imagine what Lyndon Johnson would have done with Joe Manchin. He'd have beat him up and got him in line and gave him a big, you know, boondoggle in West Virginia. He could bring back the bacon to his people and get reelected. And, well, he doesn't even say he doesn't want to get reelected. His election isn't for four years anyway. But anyway, you know, look at that and compare to the kid gloves. And, in fact, I was reading the other day, Joe Biden and Joe Manchin have been having dinner together. The old Joes. So we're, I'm just saying uh, – we got a climate emergency. We got a new nuclear arms race. A lot of struggling people are, can't pay the rent. We're about to go into mass evictions. The federal moratorium ends at the end of this month on evictions. We got these crises. Now we got a democracy crisis. So there's no excuse for people not to be very active and serious about organizing. And as I said also, I think working for ranked choice voting, particularly proportional representation through ranked choice voting for legislative bodies is a key reform. That'll get our foot in the door. You know, I think if you look at public opinion polling, like what Angela and I ran on, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, tax the rich, um, cut military spending and put that into social and environmental protections. All those positions have majority support. Trump and Biden were opposed. So, you know, we got more people with us than they got with them. How do we translate that into 
political power. Because right now what the people want doesn't translate into public policy. I think working on these electoral reforms is key to that. And again, it's going to take a mass movement because we got to move the Democrats and Republicans to support these reforms. And they'll only do it if they think it might cost them in elections. And that's where the Greens come in. When it gets to the point where, you know, say your state is considering ranked choice voting and it's a state that doesn't have an initiative and referendum process, you got to go through the state legislature. That's when they got to fear us. That's when Greens running on ranked choice voting tell, you know, the Democrats say, I better get on that or I might get, I might lose enough votes so that I won't get reelected. That's where our leverage is. So I'm just saying, I'm just sort of like feeling like Paul Revere saying, you know, there's a lot of problems and they're getting worse. And now that we've seen Biden in there for enough months, we he is who we thought he was. Hmm. Imagine that. Um, well, I don't have any more. Howie basically took it away. So all I'm going to tell y'all is good to see you. I want you to continue doing all of the things that you have been doing to keep yourselves and the folks in your orbit safe from this pandemic and also maintaining your mental health because it's hard out here. I want to cut somebody on a daily basis. And I say that with all honesty. It's hard out here. So um, just in the middle of being aware of all of the things that we are up against, find something every day that brings you joy. I don't care you know, how small you think it is um, and helps you hold on to mental and emotional equilibrium through all of this because it is very, very, very hard to live in this timeline the way that this is now. So I want y'all to, and you're right. Yeah, the, the, we see the world burning down basically and they see lunch or brunch. Well said, Miss, uh, well said, Miss Leo. And hey, Nikita, hey baby. Um, so yeah, just hold on to your mental health. I, I got to answer this guy, Alex Ahimsa. Uh-oh who's pushing approval voting and saying ranked choice voting says nothing. And he cites Australia. <laughs> Brother, didn't you hear me earlier where they have ranked choice proportional voting in the Senate? The Greens are in the Senate proportional to their vote. Where they don't have proportional representation is where they use ranked choice voting in single member districts on the House side. And yes, if we limit ranked choice voting to single member districts, nothing's going to change. Same thing with approval voting if it's single member districts. I had to answer that. No, no problem. So yeah, y'all just hold your heads up. I mean, this is, and I don't say that like someone once accused me of, you know, pay, like giving. What did he say? Spouting platitudes. I don't spout shit. Um, if I say it, I mean it. So I want y'all to be okay. Y'all matter. You matter to us. So do everything that you are able to do um, to keep yourself safe from this pandemic, which is still happening, even though people trying to live their best life. Um, like it's not happening. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's gone. It's still here. 
So take care of yourselves, take care of those in your orbit and know that we are sending you love. We got power.